forgot I turned it off. There. The uh, scripture reading today is um, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 22 through 39. Um, I want you to think about this. Uh, the, the Bible, from beginning to end, as one great story. And we'll call it the big story or the great story of redemption. Because that's what it is. It tells a story. And uh, I, so in our scripture reading today, what we're doing is just reading a little part of that big story. And the part of that big story that we are reading is arguably, um, what do we call that when the, when the story reaches the climax, the, the big part of the story. The whole story is aiming at this part of uh, uh, the story. The, this is the most important thing. And uh, it's the crucifixion of Christ. Okay, so this is a very important part of Scripture. Now that I, I uh, have said that, Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would have destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself Come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him and saying to one another, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Amen. 
You know, when, when Mark tells us the story of the crucifixion, he weaves into it a, another story. It's the story of the temple. And, and I want to show this to you. Because at the part of the great story of redemption, the big story of everything, by the way, at the, at, at the greatest part of that, that story, Mark is concerned about another story, which is the story of the temple. And you have to see it. Because what, what Jesus is doing, uh, what Mark is doing is he's weaving these two stories together. And I want to show it to you. You see, at his trial, Jesus' trial, he was accused of saying, quote, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, that was not the charge that they landed on, but Mark does not only tell us he was accused of saying that, he also quotes it. And by the way, anytime uh, you get a quote in Scripture, that's that's the author of script, the Holy Spirit saying to you, pay attention. This is important. So, Mark uh, mentions it and he quotes it, so it's important. And then, when Jesus is on the cross, Mark tells us that there were those who passed by deriding him, wagging their heads, you know what that means, and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. And then finally, right before Jesus asked, uh, right before Jesus died, Mark tells us that Jesus uttered a loud cry. John, in his gospel, tells us that when he uttered the loud cry, he said, it is finished. He breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The top to bottom indicates that the curtain was torn in two by divine hands, not human hands. Now, this story of the temple that Mark weaves into the story of the crucifixion, I want to pull on that thread. I want to pull on that thread because that story, that thread, I know weaves its way throughout the big story of redemption from the beginning to the end. We just got a little sliver of it. And, and today I want to follow that thread, the story of the temple, from, from the beginning to the crucifixion to this place where Mark puts it together with the crucifixion. And I in, invite you, after you hear this sermon, to pull on that thread the other way, from the crucifixion to the kingdom, to eternity, because the story keeps going. Now, in order to, uh, in order to follow that story and to understand that story, we have to answer one simple question, and... What is a temple? That's the question. It's the story of the temple. What is a temple? Now, uh, I've asked this question many times. I know the answers, but I consulted Wikipedia, the font of all knowledge, about what a temple is. And Wikipedia informs me that a temple is a building used for religious purposes. Well, this 
church is a building, the building part, used for religious purposes. And I can tell you emphatically, it is not a temple. If it were a temple, we would call it a temple. Now, properly understood, in other words, Wikipedia fails us again. You see, properly understood, a temple is a portal. And if you like science fiction movies or Star Trek or something, there, you know, there's always portals opening up, right? Now, what I'm telling you is a temple is a portal. There's always temples opening up in science fiction movies. What's a portal? It's a fancy word for gate or door, you see. But it's a special kind of gate or door because it is a gate from this world or realm where we humans live and move and have our beings to the heavenly realm where God or the gods live and move and have their beings. See, a temple, in order for it to be a temple, is designed for access or it's not a temple. What does that mean? There, there has to be some way in the construction of the building for us to cross that barrier from this realm and world to the heavenly realm and world. If there is no way to cross that barrier, then it's not a temple. Now, now that you know what a temple is, listen to the story. In Genesis 11... This is the story about the construction of the first temple. And when I say first temple, I don't want you to be confused because sometimes the temple in Jerusalem in the Old Testament, we say it's the first or second temple era. That is a long way off. We are way further back in history than the first and second temple uh, in Jerusalem. This is the construction of the first temple in the big story of redemption, at least the construction by humans. So after the flood, the people of the earth, that would be the descendants of Noah, settled on a plain in the land of Shinar, and they said to one another, quote, pay attention, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now, that city was called Babel, or Babylon, and in Babel, in the language of the Babylonians, means gate of heaven. Now, this may be a little confusing to you, <coughs> because if you read the story, you know that the writer of the story, the author of the story, the Holy Spirit, tells us that, that uh, Babel means confusion. What's going on there is that you're supposed to know that Babel in Babylonian means gate of heaven, and you're also supposed to realize that that word, Babel, sounds awful close in Hebrew to confusion. And so the Holy Spirit is making a pun about how confused these people were in building this tower. Now that tower whose top reached into heavens was a temple. The idea of a tower that is... That is if such a building could be constructed, whose top reached into heaven, then, then you may simply climb on the stairway around that tower, because that's what's being described here, and you could enter into the heavenly realm. So that the Tower of Babel was a temple, 
a portal. It was designed for access. Now, a couple of things here. Where did they get this idea? Did God tell them to do it? No. They didn't get the idea from God. The story shows us how they conspired among themselves with the great yes-we-can spirit in unity of purpose to accomplish this first amazing civil improvement project. God even came down from heaven to inspect the tower that the, quote, children of man had built. And, and he said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Whose idea was this? It's not God's, it's our idea. Now the second question is, is God impressed? Listen to what he says, behold. Now that's just an exclamation, right? Behold, look, or you know, things like that. So you could take that behold in, in, I think, two ways. You can take it as like a wow, or you can take it as in something like a dismay kind of thing, like a whoa kind of a th way. How do you take it? Behold, wow, they are one people. They all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. You know, look at these people what they will do just to get close to me. They must really love me. Is that the way we should take it? No. Absolutely not. This is, a, this is not a, a temple to glorify God and to make his name great. This is not a, wow, they really love me. This is, this is a statement of horror. God is going... Whoa, this is bad. This is a temple to glorify ourselves, to make our name great. This is not a temple to reconcile ourselves to God. It's a temple designed to launch an invasion of heaven. This is D-Day, to dethrone God and complete the rebellion that began in the garden. This is what's going on here. And this is, so, this, is, this is so important to understand. You might know the story of Cain and Abel, how Cain murdered his brother Abel. And I always ask if Cain murdered his brother Abel because Cain had a problem with Abel. What do you think? Why else would he murder his brother? But I know the answer. People go, yeah, obviously. And I go, read the story again. This time, really read it. Because the answer is no. Cain had a problem with God. Cain had a problem that God did not accept his sacrifice and for no apparent reason accepted his brother's sacrifice. And it was after the story tells us this that it says, and Cain's countenance fell. That means he became angry. Is he angry with his brother? He's angry with God. Cain was angry with God, and since Cain had no access to God, God being in the heavenly realm and everything, he had no access to God, he murdered his brother. Why did he murder his brother? Because he's made in God's image. Why do human beings kill each other? 
Is it really that we have a problem with one another? Or is it that we have a problem with God? And we're made in his image. You see, my friends, if the Babel project can be completed, then we have access to God and we can, if it's possible, murder him and make a name for ourselves. And if you think I am completely off on my interpretation here, because there are people who do, I will simply direct your attention to our reading today. You remember our reading today? God became human. Jesus Christ, incarnation. He came down into this earthly realm. He's right there. We have direct access to him. What did we do? We murdered him. Case closed. If the Babel project can be completed, right, that's what would happen. So here's the deal. Fallen man, that's us. We are temple builders. You know, Calvin once said that the unregenerate heart is an idol factory. That means fallen man obsessively makes idols. I agree. And for the same reason, it's the same heart that we obsessively build temples. Building temples, making idols, it's the same thing. So there are three things I think you should begin to realize here. You have realizations when you hear stories. These are the things I think you should be beginning to realize. The first one is that temples made with human hands, we being temple builders and everything, are, and human design cannot give us access to God. As the sermon goes on, I'm going to hit that again and again because that's important. The second realization that you should have is that temple builders, us, are motivated to build temples to make a name for ourselves and ultimately build temples to gain access to God for the purpose of dethroning God so that we might rule over God. And finally, and this is a, a realization I think you should begin to have, is that a temple need not be a building it doesn't have to be a building. It could be something as simple as a belief. And I'm going to give you an example of that. Because there is a belief called moralism that most people think is the gospel. But it's not. It's a temple. Listen, moralism is summed up like this. If I obey God, then I will be approved by God. If I obey God, God will approve of me. God will like me. God will accept me. You see, that belief is a temple. Obeying God is how I build the temple. B to be approved by God is how I gain access to God. And since God must approve me because of my obedience, he has to because I obey, then God owes me approval. God owes me approval. And if God owes me approval, I rule over him. And if you don't think that last part is, is, you know, really works out that way, do you owe the bank? The bank rules over you. The bank rules over you because you owe the bank. You see, the thing here about why all temple builders are doomed to fail, you see, is because it is impossible for God to owe me anything or to owe you anything. God can't owe you anything. 
On the other hand, you always owe God everything. So, let's move fast, uh, fast forward to Genesis 28, uh, where the story of the temple reemerges. And in Genesis 28, there is a famous figure. Uh, his name is Jacob. And he is the grandson of what is perhaps even a more famous figure, Abraham. Now, Abraham was the one who God came to and made promises to him and his descendants. And basically, God said it like this. God said, I promise to give you everything. Everything. I'll give it to you. Not to you, only to you, but to your descendants. Then God said, I will make your name great. Remember at Babel, it says, we will make our name great. God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. I will save you. I will give you the kingdom. And I will give you complete access to me. And those promises were called the birthright and the blessing. And since they were given unconditionally, in other words, there was no if connected to these, these promises, God just gives them. Then they are conferred by grace, because that's what grace is. And they were they are conferred to the firstborn sons, just like an inheritance, because that's what it is. It's an inheritance. And so, so God conferred them to Abraham, gave Abraham an inheritance. Abraham conferred them to Isaac, his firstborn son, gave him an inheritance. And then Isaac was to pass them to Esau, his firstborn son. And now Jacob is Esau's little brother. But Jacob is a con man and a trickster. This is what his name means. And this should be translated as guile. That's an old word too. Guile means treacherous cunning. But that's what Jacob means. And this is very important to the story because Jacob was the quintessential temple builder. That's his story. He can build temples better than you can ever imagine. See, through guile, through treacherous cunning, he tricked his father into conferring the blessing upon him instead of Esau, his brother, and now God owes him everything. See what he did? But in Genesis 28, Jacob has nothing. See, after he did, he, he uh, tricked his father and his, his brother and he, he, he got the blessing, all the promises of God, he had them. And they are irrevocable, by the way. He has them. Jacob has nothing. You see, he is on the run from his brother who made an oath to kill him for his trickery. He's going out of the promised land, the land promised to Abraham and his descendants. He's leaving the promised land. He has absolutely nothing. It is nighttime, and he stops to sleep in the middle of nowhere, and then God came to him in a vision. And he saw in this vision a ladder, and yes, Jacob's ladder. That's a bad translation because you get the picture of a ladder. This is more like a stairway. And the top of that stairway reached into the heavens. This is a step pyramid. And there was angels ascending and descending on it, going up and down that stairway. 
And behold, the Lord, and this is Christ, stood above it. And the Lord said to him, uh, all the promises that God made to Abraham, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is what, what Christ says to him. All those promises that God made to your, your grandfather Abraham, including complete access to God, everything will be given to you, Jacob, not because you gained it through trickery and deceit, but because God gives them as he wills by his grace. Remember? God can't owe you anything. This is before Jacob was even born, before he even conceived of his treachery, his Babel project, God had willed to give it all to him by grace. Now, listen to this. When Jacob woke up from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord was in this place, and I didn't even know it. And he was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. And this is none other than Bethel, which means house of God. This is, listen, the gate of heaven. Temple. So let's call it what it is. Jacob was a temple uh, was a temple builder. He was building his Babel, the Babel project, and God is building his Bethel, the Bethel project. And this is where those two stories meet. And in the Gospel of John, I'm going to jump up to John really quick here. In the Gospel of John, Jesus points us back to this very place in the story, and he says the exact same thing. You see, Philip, the disciple, meets Jesus, and he goes and he talks to his, his friend Nathaniel, and he says, come, you, let's meet Jesus, he's the one. And as Nathaniel is walking up to Jesus, Jesus said to him, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, treacherous cunning. Isn't that a strange thing for Jesus to say? Jesus is referring to the story about Jacob whose name means guile. Jacob is the Israelite in whom there is guile, you see, uh, who was later renamed Israel, the one who strives with God. And Jesus said to him, Nathanael, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's the way Jesus talks about himself. In other words, the temple that Jacob saw in his dream was Christ himself, the Bethel Project. So let's call this the Bethel Project. Jesus is the Bethel Project. The Babel Project produces temples made with human hands and human design and can't give us access to God, and every endeavor is doomed to fail because God will simply destroy it. What did Jesus say? I will destroy this temple. What temple is he talking about? The Bethel Project produced one temple made with divine hands and divine design, and God can provide us uh, and can provide us access to God, and this one endeavor cannot fail. What did Jesus say? I will build another in three days. 
The Babel project is motivated by human pride and is, is an, an assault against God and his sovereign rule. The Bethel project is motivated by divine love and grace and is an act of reconciliation by the injured party, God, towards the offending party, us. The Babel project is ultimately any belief that is not the gospel, and there are countless beliefs that are not the gospel. But the Bethel Project is the one belief that is the gospel. Now the next stop in our temple story is the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. Let's call it the Bethel Project Phase 1. It's pretty quick, but listen to what's going on here. We fast forward from Genesis 28, Jacob's vision, to Exodus. And after redeeming the Israelites from the bondage of Egypt... God commissions the Israelites to construct a, t a tabernacle. That's a tent. God's people live in tents in the wilderness. God says, if, I'm going, if you're going to have access to me, remember that promise he made? Then I need a tent. Build me a tent. Build me a temple. So a tabernacle is a portable temple. Now, God was very, very, I want you to hear this. God was very, 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 very emphatic that this temple, tabernacle, would be built exactly according to the blueprint that God gave to them. God was insistent on that. There would be no freelancing here. You, you know what I'm talking about whenever, yeah, elders, maybe. How are we going to run the church? How are we going to make a better church? Well, I got an idea. Listen, God is very, very, very emphatic that this temple be built exactly the way God says. No freelancing, no human invention, no, I have an idea, or wouldn't it be better if? And when the Israelites came into the promised land, they simply constructed a permanent building because they lived in houses. God said, build me a house, but do it exactly as I told you to build it. Now, the thing about this pattern, this design, the function, everything, is that it points us, in every, even in the minute details, to Christ in the gospel. To use the language that Paul uses here, the temple is the shadow that seeks substance, substance meaning something really real in Christ. The temple is the shadow, it's less real. Christ is the real thing. And, Beth, and the Bethel project is this, Christ is the temple. Christ is the temple. The temple is God becoming flesh and blood and dwelling among us. That's the incarnation. The temple is Christ offering himself up as the required substitutionary sacrifice for atonement. That's for the remission or removal of sin. That's the death of Christ. The temple is Christ having suffered the just penalty for our sin in our place he gives us, by his grace, his righteousness for our justification. That means the, the, God's verdict is not guilty. 
That's the resurrection of Christ. You see, the Bethel Project is the incarnation, the death, and resurrection of Christ. Christ is the temple, the portal. And this is what Mark is showing us in how he tells the story of the crucifixion. The irony of the temple builders who, having been given access to God in his incarnation, remember, that's part of the Bethel project, the incarnation of God in Christ. You see, the, having been given access to God in the incarnation of Christ, murder God. And then they wag their heads and they say, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, what Jesus is actually doing at that time. Save yourself, come down from the cross. What do you suppose Jesus would have done to those temple builders if he had abandoned the Bethel project and come down from the cross? Now, what I'm asking you is very important. I'm asking you, to, to, to imagine the story in this way. Now, Jesus didn't do this, but you can still imagine the story. You see, Jesus is on the cross. They come by. They go, aha, you who said you could rebuild the temple in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. And Jesus, just imagine that this is how the story went. Jesus says, you know you're right. I don't have to do this. I'll come down and save myself. Now, at that point, finish that story. What would Jesus have to do? Then what, you see? Then what? And this is a sincere question. This is a question you must answer. You see, how, how you answer that question will show you if you have a full grasp of the gospel itself. You see, Temple builders, us, us, we share one characteristic in common. It's called hubris. Hubris just means extreme conceit. Temple builders have no fear of God. They have no sense of their predicament and what they are dealing with here. Can you hear it? Save yourself. Ha! Ah, come down off the cross. No clue what they're dealing with. So what do you suppose Jesus would have done to those temple builders if he had abandoned the Bethel project and come down from the cross? Now, I will answer that question as Mark answers, uh, as Mark uh, answers the question in the story. You see... Jesus uttered a loud cry, it is finished. And he breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now this curtain that was installed in the temple was installed exactly according to the blueprint that God had given to them. Remember, God said, do it exactly this way. It was some four inches thick, because God said, four inches thick. It was tightly woven, because God said, weave it tightly. And it was this uh, curtain that separated the most holy place where God lived, 
Think, listen to what's going on here. God dwells in heaven. That's what the most holy place is. And, and this curtain separated the holy place, the most holy place where God lived, the realm of heaven, from, uh, from the uh, holy place, which is where the priests could go, which is uh, the earthly realm. This curtain was the barrier that separated heaven and earth, us and God. This is the gate. This curtain was necessary the very moment sin entered into the world. In fact, the only person who could breach this curtain was the high priest on the Day of Atonement and only with the blood of sacrifice offered up for the, uh, to atone the sins of the people. It was this curtain that was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus breathed his last and when he completed the Bethel Project. Now this is what you need to know. Temple builders believe that God installed that curtain to protect him from us, to keep us out. Temple builders believe that. Temple builders uh, build temples to breach this curtain. Every time you get the gospel wrong, any strategy you devise to make a name for yourself, be it through deceit or trickery like, like Jacob, which, by the way, is called antinomian, or through moralism like the Pharisees, or any variation of these two extremes. Any time you get the gospel wrong, you are attempting to breach that curtain. And if you knew why that curtain was there, you could see how absolutely foolish you are. If the Babylonians knew why that curtain was there, they would thank God that he put an end to their Babel project. Because God installed that curtain not to protect him from us. That is absurd. But to protect us from him. God is holy. You're not. God is just. You're guilty. To begin to comprehend what Jesus would have done to those temple builders if he had abandoned the Bethel project and come down from the cross is this. The first is to realize that the Father sent his Son into the world to save us from the wrath of his own father. If he had abandoned the Bethel project and come down from the cross, what we did to Christ is exactly what God must do to us if at any time Christ would have saved himself and come down from the cross. The only thing preventing that from happening prior to the completion of the Bethel project was that curtain. God installed that curtain to protect us from him. So the gospel is the temple made without human hands. The gospel is like this, because I am already approved by God in Christ, because of what Christ has done, his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection, but because of that, I obey. I obey because I owe God everything. God owes me nothing. 
Any belief other than this is a temple made with human hands and is nothing but an assault on God and his sovereign rule. And that temple, that Babel, must be destroyed before God's Bethel can save you. Now, what did Jesus say? I will destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Amen. Let us pray. Dear God in heaven, uh, we want to express our, our gratitude uh, for what you have done. Uh, we, we know that we can never uh, do enough uh, to, to repay you. And uh, we know that uh, when we obey you, it's because of, of what you have done for us and our behalf that our obedience is a gratitude, is, is an obedience of gratitude. We thank you that you have, uh, are a God that, that cares enough to destroy the works of our hands and to uh, uh, bend our hearts and to break our hearts that are, that are stubborn against you. And we thank you that uh, you are a God that uh, humbles the proud and those full with hubris. We thank you that you have given access to, to us uh, through your son. And uh, we, we pray that uh, we will be able to express the gospel in this world and, and to introduce the world uh, to your son so that the world may have access to you as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.